Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by Professor Paul Cantor to discuss his newest book on pop culture. We will be talking today not about the American dream but the dark side of the American dream. We will talk less about happy ends and more about tragedy. This new book is called Pop Culture and the Dark Side of the American Dream and it discusses as the subtitle says con men, gangsters, drug lords and zombies. It's a romp through American pop culture and actually American history starting with the post-Civil War situation in Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn and going all the way to our post 9-11, post big recession dark stories like Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead which will be our special subject for today. Sir, thank you a lot for joining me again. It's wonderful to read the book and to see your insights about the relationship between tragedy and bad things happening in America and how the movies reflect on that and try to describe what's going on and to offer audiences something other than the usual Hollywood ending. Yes, I think you've uh, put your finger on what distinguishes the book. I first want to say that I do believe in the American dream. I think it's a reality. There are a lot of books that try to debunk it, and I'm only talking about the dark side because I think the American dream has a real bright side. I think that's reflected in stories that turn the quest for the American dream into a tragedy. What I find really interesting is the American public is interested in the dark side of the American dream. Everyone wants to embrace it, and many people pursue it, but I give credit to our audience in America that they don't only want happy endings. It's a cliché. The term Hollywood endings suggests that our pop culture only wants stories to turn out happily, and certainly the majority of pop culture works do have a happy ending, but it's really significant, I think, the extent to which a broad public that is rarely given credit for its intelligence or its artistic sophistication has turned to stories that really raise profound doubts about the viability of the American dream and bring out its tragic potential. Uh, I cover Huckleberry Finn and the Godfather films and Breaking Bad and Walking Dead, but I could have done many other things. The Great Gatsby is a great story of the tragedy of pursuing the American dream. Orson Welles' Citizen Kane would be another example, or he could go back to Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, who's a very representative American figure, uh, someone in the whale business, which is to say the oil business, a character like Thomas Sutpen in William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. Some of the greatest works in American literature, contrary to popular opinion, have been tragic in nature, and that's what I wanted to pursue in this book. Yeah, in fact, it's only the arrival of Hollywood and then of television that really cemented the popular taste for happy endings and brought a new conformity to culture, but at the same time allowed for other institutionalized forms of storytelling that are really grimmer or more serious about hard stuff or even evil. Nowadays, it's very hard to imagine stories that don't have a happy end that would be very popular, which is somewhat unusual, but at the same time, the biggest blockbusters actually do include incredibly horrible stuff going on, and so in some way the audience now prefers a combination of comedy and tragedy. It's not simply happy endings, it's not simply moral characters doing moral things, so to speak. But this combination doesn't necessarily clarify the issues, what it is that sends us 
looking for the dark side of the American dream. You and I have already talked about The Godfather, there's a great example, and even Huck Finn to some extent, but we didn't get a much of a chance to talk about Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead or the apocalypse genre that's now so popular. So I thought, sir, we would start there and look at achieving in this new global economy and the insecurity it breeds in America in this new criminal light and the possibility of an alternative to this world entirely with Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead respectively. Yes, I do think they correlate with their time period. Breaking Bad covers the years 2008 to 2013. Walking Dead is still going on. But one of the things I noticed about Breaking Bad, really central issue is health insurance. All the characters' <laughs> problems follow from the fact that they have trouble with their health insurance. And they find if they like their doctor, they can't keep their doctor. Walter White's problem gets cancer and can he cover all the hospital bills. His brother-in-law, Hank, ends up in a wheelchair and... His wife's worried whether her insurance will cover that, and so on and so on in the show. And it was, of course, the signature issue of the Obama presidency. And it's really, in a way, ironic and in a certain sense profound that the show focused on that. It is, of course, the very heart of middle-class insecurity, and that's what that show dealt with. Well, we'll get to Walking Dead a little later in this regard, but I felt the show captured perfectly its own moment of history and the kinds of anxieties that had become prevalent in the U.S. And also, in light of the economic downturn, the emergence of an underclass in America, Breaking Bad, symbolized by the meth addicts. And by the way, here is a link to The Walking Dead, because that show, too, dealt with the rural poor, the people in effect in Appalachia. In a way, both shows dealt with the new crises people were undergoing because of an economic downturn. In Breaking Bad, the way I found it best to conceptualize it was in terms of the classic American superhero myth. Walter White is like Superman. He has a dual identity. He is very much Clark Kent by day, a mild-mannered character, a milquetoast. Everyone orders him around. No one gives him a second look. Women don't give him a second look. His students treat him with contempt. But by night, he's Heisenberg. You can call him a supervillain if you want. He's also a superhero, though. There's even a certain sense that he undergoes a costume change. Like Superman, he puts on that pork pie hat, and suddenly he's Heisenberg. And I think that thinking of it in terms of the superhero myth gets to the emotional heart of this series and why I think a lot of people responded to it uh, as powerfully as they did, that it reflects one of the great American fantasies that everybody thinks you're nobody and you're downtrodden, but secretly you're this great superhero and you have these superpowers. I think the show reflected uh, broad-based frustration uh, in the middle class in America, especially the male middle class, that people weren't achieving fulfillment, that they'd settled into a kind of middle class rut. And that, by the way, has always been the tension in the American dream. On the one hand, it is very much a middle class concept. What America offers is financial success, 
financial security, you work hard, you support your family that way. And that's all very good. And again, it's one of the most admirable things about America that it has made that way of life possible to so many people. But ultimately, there's something unfulfilling to it in its very ordinariness. And indeed, on one hand, the American dream has been very democratic, holding up a way of life that is hopefully available to all. On the other hand, there's been an aristocratic component in the American dream, namely to be the best and to recapture something of what had been aristocracy in Europe. And aristocracy means rule of the best in Greek. The American middle-class dream has very easily turned into the dream of the tycoon, the big businessman, striking it rich. And this is embodied in many elements of American mythology, all the way from the California gold rush to the Silicon Valley dot-com boom. And I think Walter gets caught between those two aspects of the American dream. On the one hand, he seems to have achieved a decent level of success. He lives in the suburbs. Uh, he's got two cars. He's got a wife and two children. He's educated. He has a respectable job as a high school teacher. But we learn in the backstory that he really was a Nobel Prize level chemist. He even has a little plaque in his house for contributing to research that ultimately led to a Nobel Prize. He didn't get it, but he's linked to it. And that's his great frustration. He originally helped found a high-tech company called Gray Matters and therefore could have pursued that aspect of the American dream. Uh, the company he helped found is worth over $2 billion, and that's obviously a source of frustration to him. So this whole business of Heisenberg, well, first of all, he can imagine himself into being Werner Heisenberg, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist. It's clear why he chose that name for his secret identity. And by the way, the show is filled with people with secret identities. Walt's son, Walt Jr., wants to be known as Flynn. His sidekick, Jesse, in the drug business is known as Captain Cook. The head drug dealer in the Southwest, Gus Fring, masquerades as the owner of a popular fast food chain called Polios Hermanos. So it does a great job portraying a world where everybody's frustrated and where they are not happy with who they are. And so they fantasize themselves into another role. And again, that's the great superhero myth in American culture. And here we see the dark side of it, that the role playing actually in most cases is a form of criminal role playing. And it's in fact duplicity. Yeah. Of course, you should be a believer in the American dream. You have lived it. I also am a believer in the American dream. But looking at it from the outside, you do notice a lot of the things that you're talking about and that are going on in Breaking Bad. To start with, America is the middle class nation. Uniquely, it's defined by it. But the middle class on closer inspection turns out to include people who pretend to be but aren't. Like the criminals whose secret identities are supposed to make them seem normal and this turns out to include Walter White, but also the people who are in it and want to get out, which Walter White is also, which every kid who wants to be a celebrity is, which every kid who was a weirdo and couldn't fit in and decided to run to Silicon Valley, that's what they did too. So the middle class includes these certain instabilities, these identities are not for life. You could get out. Is there anything out there that would make it interesting to you? And so in terms of the American dream, the question becomes, is it that sometimes it isn't working out and we got to fix it? Or is it that 
by its nature it's restrictive and there's going to be people who are trying to break off the chains of respectability of being a law-abiding citizen and in the modern economy this becomes not just the problem of one individual like Walter White it also becomes as you put it the problem of a lot of people who are poor and feel that the system has failed them and they don't really know that they have any better options the destructiveness of drugs is an image of that, that falling out of the middle class could be a catastrophe for you, but sometimes it feels like the last real thing. But on the other hand, the science and the business that Walter White can put into his work suggest that he has powers that he wants to use that America will not allow him to use otherwise. As you said, he got close to being famous and respectable. He got close to being successful, but it didn't work out. What is he supposed to do? Well, if times get bad, he might decide that what he's supposed to do is make the full use of his powers because you only get one life. Yeah, the series is absolutely brilliant in the way it sets up the premise, which is that his life is proceeding along pretty smoothly when he gets a diagnosis of cancer and he's told he has pretty much just one year to live. And uh, that triggers this incredible middle-class anxiety First of all, how am I going to pay for my hospital bills? And what's going to happen to my family and specifically to my children? And how are they going to get an education? And so as it works out, through a chance encounter with one of his former students, who's now a drug dealer, Walter gets an idea of how much money you can make from crystal meth. And his motives on the surface, and I think in total to begin with, are quite middle class. That he only goes into it for the money. He, I think he calculates if he can leave $700,000, his kids can go to college. <laughs> this is probably right. In that sense, it's in perfect continuity with his middle class existence. And in fact, he misreads the criminal world. He thinks it is just a business. He thinks he can rationalize with these criminals he's dealing with, not understanding that characters like Crazy Eight and Tuco are from a different world. They are violent men. They don't just listen to reason. They get very proud about things. They're very aggressive. And so sometimes they will kill people just because they're nasty, proud, and aggressive, and not because they're making a rational economic calculation. It's kind of a source of comedy in the early episodes that Walter thinks he's just entered a business world, and gradually he discovers what the criminal world is. But that's then the interesting twist in the show, that he suddenly finds that this highly masculine world with alpha males, with very aggressive characters, is attractive to him. He's lived such a life of repression, of taking cuff from everybody, to keep himself going, he needs a second job, and he works in a car wash, and is tyrannized over and humiliated by his boss, Bondan. And what criminal life fulfills for him is it gives him a sense of being a real man. One of the things I noticed in the show, I guess I'm proudest of this observation about it, and it's one of those epiphanies you have when you study popular culture, is at one point I suddenly realized the show is about crippled masculinity. There are so many images in it of men who are crippled. Walter is crippled with his cancer to begin with. His son, Walt Jr., is crippled with muscular dystrophy. His brother-in-law, Hank, who's a DEA agent in a shootout, ends up uh, temporarily paralyzed and has to be in a wheelchair and is humiliated to have his wife wheeling him around. And, of course, the absolutely central symbol in it, which is just uncanny, is of Hector Salamanca, the drug lord, who has ended up in a wheelchair 
presumably because of the stroke he had, but one of the greatest images in the show is Hector in that wheelchair, unable to speak, having to ring a bell to communicate, and this culminates in the plot to kill Gus Fring, absolutely brilliant resolution of that element in the plot. But I began to see, yeah, this comes up again and again, men who are somehow humiliated, who can't perform their male tasks. There are definitely hints of the issue of sexual impotence, both with Walter White and with Hank and his story. And I began to realize that's the whole core of Breaking Bad, the way in which masculinity has been crippled in the modern world. And that's then linked to the other thing I noticed, the prevalence of therapy in the show. It's not highlighted, but when you start to add it up, Walt has to go to therapy for his cancer. Hank's wife, Marie, has to go to therapy for her kleptomania. Walt, at one point, is supposedly going to Gambling Anonymous. Jesse has to go to therapy for his heroin addiction. And it just comes up again and again that it's a world of therapy. And in particular, that therapy has replaced religion. None of the American characters are in any way religious. It's actually significant in the show that only the Mexicans are shown to be religious. The Salamanca cousins go to a weird Mexican shrine before heading off to, they think, kill Walter White. And this, by the way, links back to The Godfather. Those movies contrasted the communal religious life of the Sicilians with the secular corporate life in America. And there's something similar. Uh, Sicily is to the United States as Mexico is to the United States in Breaking Bad. And I noticed that it's a world in New Mexico that consciously excludes religion. There's that tragedy when the plane crashes. I think it's season two. And the uh, students at the high school have a meeting for therapy to come to terms with their grief. And some kid asks from the audience, well, how could God have let this happen? And the school official says, "Uh, let's keep this secular. I think the show shows this is emblematic of America. Part of the problems uh, that it shows in people is that they have no religious faith, to help them cope with their problems, and so they turn to therapy instead. In fact, Jesse's therapy group meets in a church. (laughs) Never think of turning to a a pastor for help. They turn to therapy, and the show suggests the emptiness of therapy, that Jesse himself is appalled when he learns that his therapist was responsible for the death of his own daughter. I think it's in a drunk driving accident. And the therapist, as a point of therapy, says, well, I got over that. And Jesse can't accept that. He's really quite appalled by it. And later on, we see that Walter White is at least willing to accept responsibility for what he did. And so I think there's a connection in the the show that uh, in America now, the answer is therapy. So the response to a man like Walter White would be he needs anger management classes. And they don't actually show that in the series. It would have been too perfect if they'd done that. But the idea is you take this mass and aggression and you want to get rid of it. I mean, traditionally, and this would be the great theme of the Homeric epics, and I'd argue a Greek tragedy in much of Shakespeare, is you've got to channel this masculinity, this manliness, into something productive, to turn spiritedness into public spiritedness, so that you would engage someone's aggression in some kind of public cause. It's the traditional notion of what the military does. 
But this is a world that doesn't allow any expressions of masculine aggressiveness. It's a world with a lot of passive aggression, and it even comes up in Walt's behavior as a teacher, that he knows he's too good to be teaching high school chemistry, and so he actually is very snarky and sarcastic with his students. I came to the conclusion that much of what's going on in the show is the frustration of masculinity in a world that is trying to condemn it as toxic. This horrible phrase we have now, toxic masculinity. I mean, what we call toxic masculinity was Achilles. I mean, we called heroes uh, in the epic world and the tragic world. And so uh, it's very interesting that in the show, the most masculine men turn out to be criminals. Now, that's not good. <laughs> it is not healthy that their manliness should be expressed in the form of criminality. But what you see in the show, what are the alternatives? Walter has not offered any of the traditional avenues for a healthy expression of manliness, and so he does unfortunately drift into this world of criminality. But to me, that's what makes him a tragic figure and makes the show a great American tragedy that what happens when the outlets for traditional heroism have been closed down. And to distinguish himself, he has to become the best meth maker in the Southwest and ultimately the world. And there is something fulfilling to him, both in the sense that he gets to put his talents to use, and it's made clear in the show that it's actually quite an achievement of chemistry that he can produce meth that's 99.1% pure, but it also allows him to be a man to stand up to people and to have people afraid of him. All his life, he's been a coward. He's let himself be pushed around by everyone around him. And his great moment is the speech when his wife, Skyler, is worried that he's in danger. And he says to her, I am the danger. I am the one who knocks. And she doesn't have to worry about someone knocking at the door coming to kill him. He would be, he's the one who knocks now. And it's a great, it's actually a Shakespearean moment, that line, I am the danger. Or later when he says, I am the man who killed Gus Spring. It's like, I am the man who shot Liberty Balance. You're right. Walter White starts in a almost comically miserable position. He's failing at being middle class, and then fate seems to continuously humiliate him further for that failure, until the point where he realizes that he's gonna have to do something about it. He stumbles into something that he doesn't understand at first, but as you said, that gradually he learns really speaks to his deepest desires. Ultimately, the image of the drug lord is putting together our modern powers, we have institutions, and we have technology, and adding to them the desire for tyranny, because people who take your drugs are your slaves, actually. Their payment to you does not have simply the character of a contractual exchange in a free market. You're taking the life out of them, and this is therefore Walter White's revenge on a world that would not have him respectable, dignified, honored on any other terms. And it also shows precisely modern powers like technology and institutions put to a bad use. But these are of course also the institutions that fail him when he gets sick, that fail a lot of People, of course, especially poor people in America who do not have access to the institutions and technology that other people do have access to. In a certain way, the class division now means who gets to live longer. That's what gives the story not just the personal problem of Walter White, but where he fits in America. 
as he falls down from the middle class and he faces this humiliation, in a certain way he takes on the anger of lower class white people and indeed any people in America who look at America, at the American success, at the American dream, as we say, from the bottom up there, who have to admire other people as though they were on pedestals, and therefore who feel that their sense of equality has been insulted. And so now this guy gets to affirm his inequality, his own superiority, finally, and he realizes that this is good. You're mortal either way, and if the good things don't happen for you in life in a respectable way, you don't get another chance. This is the one life you got, and you have to take your opportunity, even if it's a monstrous thing to do. Because it will mean you're a man, that is to say, somebody who faces up to death. You will no longer be shackled by institutions and technology that play on your fear of death, on your need for safety. That's very good way of putting it, and I'd like to focus on the idea of institutional failure, because I think what we'll see is very similar in Walking Dead. I think both shows reflect a profound sense of America in that decade, in this decade, of institutional failure that the middle class had been brought up to trust its government, to trust its banks, to trust its medical institutions, its educational institutions, and particularly after 2008-2009, all that started to look really bad. And again, uh, they bring up the very interesting point, the horror of falling out of the middle class. Middle class has been offered as a goal and a permanent one. Uh, you reach the middle class. Part of reaching the middle class is that that's permanent. It's middle class security. You have a steady job. Your money is placed in a bank that will not fail. You have health insurance. Your children can go to good schools. All of those ideas have been profoundly undermined really in the past 20 years. And I think both Walking Dead and Breaking Bad achieved their popularity and their prominence because they reflected this sense that something's gone wrong on the institutional level and therefore people have to fall back on their own. And in Breaking Bad, it's particularly interesting that there are no institutions that are offered as dependable. And that includes the DEA, the proxy for the federal government in the show. Normally, in this kind of story, there's some good guys facing the bad guy. One reason I objected to people who call Walter White a simple villain, just the bad guy, is give me an example in the show of someone who's better than Walter White. Hank, the DEA agent, is, I believe, the most reprehensible character in the series. Now, I've taken a lot of flack for saying that because people think, well, he must be the hero. He's the police. He's the Elliot Ness figure, but he's not an Elliot Ness figure. He's a braggart. He violates the law repeatedly in the show and himself comes to recognize it. He's a coward when he's promoted and sent to El Paso to the front line of the drug war. He sees some colleagues blown up and he throws up. And he just loses it, basically ends up with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so you would think, and it would be typical of such a show, to represent the DEA in a good light or the FBI or whatever. But in fact, the show undermines the authority of the DEA by showing they're just cowboys. They're just out for their own glory. 
They disregard the law. Unfortunately, we have Saul Goodman there, the great lawyer, to point out when the DA is violating Walt's constitutional rights and so on. So you would be very hard-pressed in Breaking Bad to find any institution that holds up to any kind of critique. And that, to me, is very basic to the series. And again, it's related to The Walking Dead. And it's particularly reflected in what I'll call the Wild West aspect of the show. This is something I trace everywhere in my book, basically. I connect the American dream to the Wild West, so I was particularly surprised to figure out in the Godfather movies that Las Vegas is the Wild West. Like all good American stories, the Godfather stories ultimately say, go west, young man. But Gilligan brilliantly exploits this in Breaking Bad. He uses the New Mexico setting much of the cinematography is straight out of John Ford, and Vince Gilligan has said that in discussing what he does in the show. And the Mexicans, again, the Salamanca brothers, show up in classic Mexican outfit. They got the spurs on their boots. And there's a strong sense that what has happened to Walter White is he began in suburban Albuquerque and he ends up sort of in Monument Valley of John Ford where suddenly he's in a much more elemental and primal environment where men are men and they face each other mano a mano. There are scenes in the show that are quite self-consciously staged as gunfights. And so the show reflects something that, again, we can talk about in Walking Dead. What it recognizes is a breakdown in institutional order, and that's terrible. And it makes life really miserable for a lot of people, and it's threatening, and it's dangerous. On the other hand, it is liberating. The safe domestic order that Walter White had been living in all his life was also stifling for him and really bundling up his energies and not giving them self-expression. So the breakdown in order, which leads him into the criminal world, does open up a series of possibilities for him. Now, again, as I always have to say, I'm not recommending going into the meth business, and I think the show does a great job of showing how horrible meth addiction is. That episode, Peekaboo, is the greatest anti-drug commercial ever filmed. But it is paradoxically and tragically true uh, that this kind of breakdown in institutional order does allow for the release of certain human possibilities that had been dammed up. And again, this is why the Wild West figures so prominently in American popular culture. It is where we turn for our Homer for our Homeric heroes, who, by the way, lived in a lawless, non-political world in just the sense the Wild West was. And we consistently look to the frontier in our pop culture mythology to find a place and a time when people could be heroic because they had to be self-reliant. And that's the point about Walter White, that having been the utterly dependent person he was, incapable of standing on his own or making his own decisions. Personally, I think that's why he lost out in the high-tech company, that he wasn't up to the courage you need to be an entrepreneur. He thought, oh, I'm a great chemist. I've got the science. I can be a businessman, but what he's lacking, I'm guessing, is the courage of putting his money at risk. So he allowed himself to be bought out for $5,000 in a very middle-class way. You know, $5,000 is $5,000. What do you think this company is going to be worth $2 billion? Someday it takes a real entrepreneur to have the courage to pursue that. 
So anyway, in that sense, he does even become entrepreneurial by going into the drug business. He starts to think like an entrepreneur. What does the public want? And how can I produce it? And how can I produce it cheaper? And so on. So that's the sense in the series, and I think a lot of other series at the time, particularly the apocalyptic narratives, that this is the way you free something in the human soul. Yeah, I think that is exactly right. It's not just that the system isn't perfectly tweaked or it makes mistakes and we have to adjust the system and the institutions and get more tech and then we'll be happy. The truth is that some parts of what we want, we simply cannot get within the limits of middle class life. And presumably some of them just cannot be had because you would have to end up like Walter White, a tyrant. You know, a lot of the tension in the show has to do with that, how attractive tyranny is to face danger to get what you want finally, but also how fearful it is and how it corresponds to our own dark desires and our nightmares, to be frank. And you're perfectly right that the setting for that in America is always the Western. The Western starts with, you know, James Fenimore Cooper and The Last of the Mohicans back when the frontier was on the Ohio. But it's always allowed Americans to see one side of this frontier is civilization, on the other side, nature. And that allows for the revelation of more possibilities that speak to us than we can actually have in our societies. They reveal certain things about us that then we will have to deal with if we realize what they truly are. Reading your chapter on Breaking Bad, the thing that struck me more than anything else is that Walter White is basically Hank Morgan. This is a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, another tech-savvy guy who's manlier than he realizes. I mean, Hank Morgan in Mark Twain's book ends up in the past because he gets knocked out because he got into a fight. He's not just the engineer he presents himself as. He's actually a very spirited guy, secretly, as it were. He's not aware of it himself. But he goes back into a past... In this case, the past of the Western, where he can be the boss, where he doesn't want to take guff anymore, and he doesn't have to now, where he can use his unusual scientific powers to boss everybody else around. That's wonderful. That's the best interpretation of Connecticut Yankee King Arthur's Court I've ever heard, and I've come up with one myself, and yours is better. Uh, <laughs> indeed, we should mention that my chapter on Breaking Bad is called The Macbeth of Meth. And the actual chapter is a systematic comparison of Breaking Bad with Shakespeare's Macbeth. It's always been a dream of mine as a Shakespeare scholar to write an extensive essay comparing a Shakespeare work with a pop culture work. And I managed to do that here, and I leave it to readers to see how I work this out. But it, it really confirms just what you're saying, that I chose a Shakespeare work, which is about tyranny and about a tyrant who ultimately thinks he can achieve power over nature. And what's really interesting that you've brought out is that there's a tyrannical impulse in Walter White that is repressed as long as he lives in the middle class world, but is awakened when that order dissolves. One way of looking at this, going back to the American dream, and again, I try to use this book to conceptualize both the nature of the American dream and what's problematic about it. Uh, as basically conceived, the American dream is thought of as not a zero-sum game. It's offered as something that is achievable by everybody, and in that sense, democratic. And indeed, there's no reason why everyone can't have a comfortable, secure, middle-class life. That's what the United States has proven, even though it's not done it perfectly, but it brought more people into the middle class than any country had ever done before, and that was based on democratic capitalism. 
both democracy as a form of government, but also capitalism as an economic system, which indeed brings out the economic common self-interest that people have and why they can live together and why they will prosper if they live together in peace. But there's this other side to the American dream, which is a lingering aristocratic component that it is a zero-sum game, that it's not enough for everyone to be rich there's still a sense, I got to be richer than anybody else. The American dream has two incarnations. One is the middle-class success story, but the other is the dream of Rockefeller and Carnegie. Today, it would be Elon Musk and other famous entrepreneurs, Bill Gates and so on. That just got to be rich. You got to be the richest man in the world. And, you know, again, Orson Welles explored that in Citizen Kane and F. Scott Fitzgerald in, in Great Gatsby. And then you have a problem because not everybody can be the richest man in the world. And indeed, you see that there is this element that produces tyranny. That element is still in the human soul in a liberal democracy, and you see people who seek tyranny in the form of monopoly and various forms of big business. And so, yeah, you're exactly right that Walter White is not just in quest of money, but he's in quest of power. And it's really interesting to read that back into Hank Mill Morgan in Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee, because it, it, all his goals seem to be liberal democratic. He wants to introduce a free press into medieval England and to eliminate slavery and all these good goals, but it ends up with his becoming a tyrant and actually using modern technology in the form of automatic weapons because he comes from the Colt factory in Hartford, Connecticut to wipe out all the knights in England in one massive battle that really anticipated the horrors of World War I trench warfare. And so indeed, I had never looked at it that way, but that's a very good way to understand this buried tyranny in the American soul that is, again, a kind of hangover from the aristocratic world. I start with Mark Twain, but with the Huckleberry Finn instead of Connecticut Yankee, to show there that despite the fact that America is a democracy and is declared its independence from England, there is still this fascination with the old world aristocracy. Twain sees it in the notion of Southern aristocracy, which he treats as a completely phony aristocracy because it's based on a particularly virulent form of slavery. And he really goes after Anglophilia in America. He's got these two con men. That's how I begin the book with con men, the king and the duke. And they dupe a really credulous American population into the ridiculous idea that one of them is Louis the Seventeenth yep. uh, from France and the other is the Duke of Bridgewater or Bilgewater as it comes out in the work that's Twain's comment on that and he had this sense that really annoyed Twain that America had not really declared its independence from England that it was still too fascinated with England and aristocracy and he saw that that was still at work in the American soul and so much of our rhetoric is still aristocratic in pop culture. We had Duke Ellington and Count Basie. It's in our sports. Babe Ruth was the Sultan of Swat, and everybody's the king of this or the queen of that. And in a way, it devolves into the drug lord. Yep. The fact that we use this term, drug lord. In a way, that's what Walter White becomes, a drug lord. That's the sense in which it is fulfilling to him. In a world of middle-class democratic mediocrity, the only way he can achieve aristocratic status is as a drug lord. 
That's what I would say is his tragedy. There's a kind of misdirection of his heroic impulses, but it's clear ultimately, and he confesses it at the end, that he enjoyed the power of it and the moment when he says, say my name that he's made a name as Heisenberg. So I never thought of linking him up with Hank Morgan, but that works very well. I wish I had a chance to rewrite my chapter now, but it's in print. <laughs> yeah, so for us to have the middle-class life, for us to have some kind of security and some good things, we have to work for it. Now, the problem with that is that the work is inherently competitive and somewhat uncertain. You don't know what's going to produce value. You don't know which way the popular taste will turn. You don't know what is going to pay off. You have to take a lot of chances, but for no clear results. And so this creates a mass desire for safety, but it also creates a certain sense of humiliation and resentment at missed or lost opportunities. And it encourages people to distinguish themselves as much as possible. If it is at all possible to look like they're a different species from the common American. Hence the interest in American entertainment elites to parade themselves as aristocrats, which was typical in silent Hollywood, and as English aristocrats in talkies Hollywood in the 30s and 40s, or nowadays some celebrities just transform into freaks of various kinds to show that they are from a different species, they live in another world, that they don't play by the rules of middle class society, and that they deserve all the gawking, all the attention, all the deference. Celebrities are almost expected to be prima donnas, to have diva behavior, as we say. Now, prima donna means first ladies from opera. Diva actually means goddess. There is this deep desire. Our celebrities are our vaguely caricatural versions of Greek tragic heroes. Larger than life, commanding attention, splendid above all. But splendor is one thing, and power is another. And there's an entire other class of people who decide to get power in order to be distinguished, in order to finally get the honor that they believe they deserve. A democratic society is inevitably envious of people who want to distinguish themselves. But that only makes people want it more. Hence the billionaires in various lines of business who can never stop, who don't know how to be anything else because they want to be the thing that they are that gets so much power. It doesn't matter exactly what the money involved is, but the power involved is very important. It ends up defining them, so they'll do it till they die. They never go away. In a way, it's a problem with boomer America now facing all these generational conflicts in public because nobody wants to go away. People want to die in power. You have politicians in their 70s hoping to finally make it. They never go away. Well, it's interesting because one of the things I make a point of in the book is that the creators of these various works about the American dream have, by and large, lived the American dream themselves. Samuel Clemens came from very low origins and made himself into Mark Twain, in some ways one of the first international superstars. Then I have a chapter on W.C. Fields. Same thing, a man born in very humble circumstances as William Claude Dukenfeld became W.C. Fields. Uh, imposture is one of the great themes, and double identities is one of the great themes in my book, Walter White, being another example of that. And so in many cases, particularly once you get to Hollywood, these creators have themselves lived this incredible upward movement. They've come from basically nothing to becoming great celebrities. But they're very aware of the fragility of the celebrity. They tend to be very afraid that they'll end up at the bottom again. In some cases, Twain went bankrupt. 
Coppola, I don't know if he technically went bankrupt, but he certainly came close. And so Hollywood really is the epitome of what you were talking about. An entrepreneur has to anticipate the taste of the public. And the public is fickle, and so you can be on top of the world one day and down at the bottom. And nowhere is taste more fickle than in the world of popular culture. So these Hollywood moguls, look, we call them Hollywood muggles, like they're from the Muggle Empire. These Hollywood moguls live in great fear. I mean, one of the great paradoxes of Hollywood is, by and large, it's anti-capitalist, even though it's the absolute epitome of capitalism. And one of the reasons, I think, is that these Hollywood moguls are terrified of capitalism. It's put them where they are today because, indeed, they did something right. They did anticipate public taste and made some kind of innovation in technique or subject matter or whatever. But they live in terror that the market is fickle and that they'll lose it all. And so it turns them against capitalism because capitalism forces them to be so alert and on top of things or else they will lose it all. So it's really interesting. to, uh, And again, you're absolutely right that in the old Hollywood and now we seem to know in the new Hollywood, these men, and they are mostly men, are power hungry. And so we get the Harvey Weinstein types, and they try to exercise power over women. And we're coming to realize how horrible that is. You know, as people understand, that's not sexual desire behind that. It's a desire for power. I mean, some of the greatest tyrants of the modern world have been Hollywood moguls. And that was uh, even more true, I guess, back in the 1930s than it is now. And so there's a kind of appropriateness in the way that Hollywood has produced so many of these stories of the dark side of the American dream. I think Wells understood that very well in creating Citizen Kane. And, of course, it's in there in The Godfather, in the link between the mafia and Las Vegas and the entertainment industry and the whole role of Johnny Fontaine, secretly Frank Sinatra, in The Godfather films. So there's a lot of things coming together here that teach us not just about the products of Hollywood, but Hollywood itself. This should wrap up this our first part of the discussion, Breaking Bad, tyranny coming out of the middle class, the desire for power, the dark side of the American dream. So folks, the book is called Pop Culture and the Dark Side of the American Dream. Go up on Amazon, go find it, buy it, it's a delightful read and it is full of the sorts of insights breezily poured in and added up as you can see on the podcast. It's something you're gonna love reading and smack yourself over the head for not having got before. And next week, for the second part of our conversation, we'll be talking about The Walking Dead. All the best meanwhile.